Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick continues our series of messages on the book of Acts. Today, looking at chapter 4, verse 32, through chapter 5, verse 11. And now, here's Jim. Good morning, everybody. I'd uh, like to start off with a story this morning. It's a story of a man who invited his friend to come to church with him. And it was this, first, this man's first time that he was ever in a church service before, so everything was new to him. And once the preacher came up to uh, speak, his friend noticed after a while the preacher doing this, pointing up towards the ceiling. And he asked his friend, what's he doing? And his friend said, he wants the lights turned on so he can see his notes better. Oh, okay, okay. So the preacher kept going, and after a little while, he noticed the preacher doing this. And he asked, the, he asked his friend, what's that mean? And his friend said, the preacher's thirsty. The pastor wants someone to bring him a cup of water. Oh, okay. Well, this pastor, who was known for long-winded sermons, after a while, kept doing this, kept looking at his watch. So the young man asked him, what's he doing? What does that mean? And his friend said, it means nothing. I, I, I share that story with you this morning because the clock at the back of the church is broken. I don't have a watch. I don't have my cell phone with me. I have no idea what time it is. So we'll go until my notes run out and whatever time that is, we're good with that. But this, uh, this morning, we're going to continue on in our study of the book of Acts. And we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verse 32 to chapter 5, verse 11. So you can open your Bibles, open your cell phones, open whatever you have to those uh, chapters. And we'll be uh, jumping into those. Now, in these verses, Luke records in the end of chapter 4 a form of charity that the early Christians were practicing among themselves. And we're also introduced to a man named Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas. As well, the end of chapter 4 sets the stage for a troubling event that takes place in the life of the early church that's found in the first half of chapter 5. That's an outline of what we'll be looking at this morning. So let's jump right in and starting with Acts chapter four, verse 32 to 35. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. These verses are companion verses to ones that are found earlier at the end of chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 43 to 45 reads, Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Here in chapters 2 and 4, Luke notes the work of the apostles and the believers' charity towards those in need. If you remember back to the introduction of Acts, we looked at how Luke was continuing to write an account to a man named Theophilus of the events that had been occurring, that had been taking place when Jesus came to this earth in human form. The first edition of Luke's account to Theophilus is the gospel that bears his name. 
Acts is the second book in the series that we have. And in it, Luke is undertaking to record the early life of the church that began after Jesus ascended back into heaven. Now, twice in fairly quick succession, Luke records a form of charity that was being practiced among these early believers. And Luke must have considered this significant enough to mention it twice so close together. This form of charity involved individuals selling things that they owned when a need arose and distributing the money to those in need. In Acts chapter 2, Luke records it as selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And in chapter 4, Luke specifically speaks of early believers selling land and houses from time to time and giving the money to the apostles to be distributed to those who are in need. Now, it's important to note here that there's no indication that this was a specific command that was given to the early believers to do so. Now, Jesus gave a general command to love your neighbor as yourself. And this form of charitable act would have been a tangible way to express that love. But there's not a specific command that I've come across that told the early believers to do this. They were doing this of their own accord. Now, this was also not a form of communal living, as the money that was given to those was given to those in need, rather than being rather than being given to support the community as a whole, such as you would if you were living in a commune. The early Christians still had their own individual autonomy, but they saw their possessions as items to be used for the greater good of the church collective, specifically those in need. Now, there's been some thought that one of the reasons that they so easily did this was because they believed that the the return of Christ was imminent in their lives. If they did believe that Jesus would return during their own lifetime, well, it would make sense to dispose of property to make someone else's life better today rather than to hold on to something that would be of no value to themselves when Christ returns. And there is some circumstantial evidence to suggest this, but I believe the more likely reason is that they took to heart the teaching of Jesus Christ and later on the Apostle Paul, that they were to live their life as if Christ were going to return today. Jesus told his disciples, even he didn't know the hour and the day when this age would come to an end, but to be prepared by living each day as if it were the last. I have to confess to you, I find it challenging when I get up in the morning to start the day with this type of a mindset. To get up and not only start the day, but to carry on throughout the whole day as if Christ were going to return today. Oh, I know that Christ can return any day. But to live each day as if this is the day that Christ is returning, I find that a difficult challenge. And I wonder how many of us live with that kind of mindset today. It's been close to 2,000 years since Jesus spoke those words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 24. To live each day prepared, prepared so that when the day of Christ's return does happen, you will not be taken by surprise. After 2,000 years of waiting, it's easy to develop an attitude of complacency. But each day that we live on this earth is one day closer to the inevitable day of the Messiah's return. Perhaps I need to work as an ambassador for Christ, as Paul puts us, with an attitude of more urgency in the timeline of the work that God has for me. I'm the type of person who needs a deadline to get motivated. And maybe I need to treat every day as if this is the deadline day. Maybe we all need to have more of that attitude in our lives. 
Well, just in case God has in mind to come back at 12 noon today, I'd better keep going along with uh, this sermon before our deadline is up. But let's continue on. Verses 36 and 37 in chapter 4. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. In these verses, Luke not only gives us an example of someone who displays the form of Christian charity that is spoken of in the previous verses, but it's interesting. He uses a literary technique to introduce us in a minor way to an important character whose story is about to be told. Joseph, who is of the tribe of Levi, is much better known farther along in the Bible by the moniker that the apostles gave him, that is Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Now, lots of people become known for a name that is somehow bestowed upon them. Maurice Richard was known as the Rocket. John Wayne, simply known as the Duke. We have our own son of encouragement here. We have our own guy. His name is Joseph, too. But uh, our Joseph doesn't come from Cyprus. He comes from Schumacher. And he's sitting at the back of the soundboard right now. He's our son of encouragement. We all need a son of encouragement. Who wouldn't want to be Barnabas' friend? Who wouldn't want to hang out with a guy who's an encourager and not a discourager? Now, Luke uses the same technique of introducing a major character in a minor role elsewhere in Acts. Saul, who later became known as Paul, is introduced to us in a similar fashion. In the account of the stoning of Stephen, Luke records, Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. When God inspired the authors of the Bible to write, he didn't dictate word for word what they were to record. Rather, in God's inspiration... He allowed the author's personality to show through in their writing, and I think that's a really neat thing. Barnabas was not as well known as Paul in the book of Acts, as Paul had a more prominent role. But Barnabas, his story comes out in chapters 9 to 15, and we'll be coming up to that in the the coming weeks ahead as we continue on in this book. And Barnabas is mentioned 29 times alone in the book of Acts, as well as a few other times in some of the other letters that were written to the early churches. Barnabas is introduced to us as a Levite from Cyprus, and we are told that he sold a field that he owned and brought the money to the apostles for them to distribute to those in need. It's interesting to note that Levites were not allowed to own property. God chose the tribe of Levi to be responsible to minister in the tent of meeting that he commissioned to be built after God rescued the Israelites from Egypt in the hand of Pharaoh. Later, they continued that role when they entered the Promised Land, and because of their duties that they were required to do, their dedication to the temple ministry and in various cities that God had ordained for them to be in, they were not allowed to own property of their own. Instead, God directed the Levites to be given a portion of the tithes and offerings that were brought to the temple, that they be given to the Levites and their families in order to sustain them. So how did Barnabas end up with property to sell? Well, for the sake of time, we won't go into details, but the prophet Jeremiah was also a Levite, whose priestly heritage could be traced back to Aaron. And he was directed at one point by God to purchase a property as part of a rite of redemption. Well, perhaps this was the story with Barnabas as well. It's also possible that Barnabas had a wife who owned a piece of property that the two of them sold together in this case. 
Or perhaps uh, it could be that this restriction from land purchase was not being uh, observed as strictly as it had once been. We're not told how Barnabas came into possession of this field. God doesn't reveal to us all that we want to know all the time, but he does reveal to us what we need to know. And for this story, all that we need to know is that Barnabas, whom we are introduced to as the son of encouragement, sells a piece of land that he owned so that the money can be used for those in need. Well, here's some other quick facts about Barnabas that we'll be coming across as we encounter him farther along in the book of Acts. Barnabas recommended Paul to the apostles after Paul's conversion. You see, the disciples were still afraid of Paul, even after his conversion on the road to Damascus. But it was Barnabas who explained how Paul's life had changed from being a persecutor of Christians to being a promoter of Christ. And Barnabas was sent by the church leaders in Jerusalem to Antioch to strengthen this new church. And through his encouragement, the church continued to grow. And Barnabas later on went to Tarsus to find Paul and bring him back to Antioch to help minister in this growing church. And the two of them also went off and carried a love offering back to other Christians in Judea at the time. Barnabas was set apart along with Paul by the Holy Spirit to set off as missionaries on what became known as Paul's first missionary journey. And in Lystra, Barnabas and Paul were mistaken for Greek gods when they healed a man who was lame. And they had a hard time convincing the people in Lystra that they were only mere men. Barnabas and Paul were present and gave testimony at the council in Jerusalem, the time when a compromise was worked out between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Barnabas also became a mentor to John Mark as the two of them set off to revisit towns that he and Paul had preached in earlier. And in the book of Galatians, we can learn about the fact that Barnabas was human, just like the rest of us, and prone to making mistakes. And you can read about that in Galatians chapter 2. There's a lot about Barnabas that can be missed because of the more prominent character of Paul, but he played an important role in the establishment of the early church. Well, let's move on to the last portion of Acts that's before us today. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, starting at verse 1. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the men at the feet who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard these events. 
that Barnabas is an example of how to conduct Christian charity, Ananias and Sapphira are examples of how not to. What stands out is the extent that God went to making an example of this couple to the rest of the church. God did not consider their actions a stretching of the truth or a somewhat truthful comment made in jest. Oftentimes, we all tend to stretch the truth. Like the father who tells his children over and over the same story ad nauseum, each time the story getting a little bit more exciting. Or we may be technically truthful in our comments, but they're misleading, sometimes with a humorous intent. There's a story of a former NBA basketball player named Stacy King. Stacy King played with the Chicago Bulls during the same time period that Michael Jordan did. And during that time, Michael Jordan, in one game, scored a career-high 69 points. 69 points is a huge accomplishment for a basketball player in one game. Well, as the game wore on, the coach decided to pull out Michael Jordan to give him a rest. And so he called Stacy King and said, you go in the game. Stacy King was never a starter. He was more of a bench warmer. But this evening, he got in to the game to help finish off the win with the Chicago Bulls. And as the game was winding down, the minutes were winding down, Stacy King was fouled. And he was sent to the free throw line. He had two chances to score a basket that night. He missed on the first one. But on the second one, he scored a basket and added one point to the total for the Chicago Bulls. Well, after his NBA career was over, Stacy King became a sports broadcaster. And one time, a fellow broadcaster asked him, what was the most memorable point in your NBA career? And without hesitation, Stacy King replied, the most memorable time in my NBA career was the night Michael Jordan and I combined to score 70 points. <laughs> yeah. That's not the kind of incident that Luke records here with Ananias and Sapphira. Right after the account of Barnabas selling a field and giving the money to the apostles, Luke records a sale of a piece of property by this husband and wife. The property that this couple owned was theirs to do with as they pleased. No one was asking or demanding that they sell it. And even after they sold it, the money itself was theirs to do with as they pleased as well. But they decided as a couple to misrepresent themselves before the apostles and God. They did not stretch the truth, nor did they technically tell the truth with a humorous intent to mislead. Rather, they intentionally lied with a desire to gain something for themselves through that lie. Now, Peter confronts Ananias and asks him, how is it that Satan has so filled his heart that he lied to the Holy Spirit? Peter doesn't condemn him for lying to himself, but Peter does condemn him for lying to God. When Peter asks Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? The implication is that Satan was now influencing and controlling Ananias rather than as a Christian, Ananias being influenced by the Holy Spirit. When Ananias hears Peter's remarks, he doesn't even have time to respond. He falls down and dies, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Later, when Sapphira comes in, Peter asks her if the money that her and Ananias presented to the apostles was the amount that they received for the sale of the land, to which she replies, yes, it is. I suspect Peter already knew the answer she was about to give. But here she had the opportunity to tell the truth, but instead she continued the lie, not realizing the fate of her husband. She too fell down and died immediately. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. 
Wow. I can hardly imagine what the atmosphere must have been like in that room as these events unfolded. I think the fear, great fear, I think the phrase great fear sees the whole church just seems like an understatement to me. People who were witnesses to what had happened must have started searching their hearts for any unconfessed sin in their own lives to get right before God. The account of Ananias and Sapphira reveals the depth of God's displeasure with sin, especially sin within his body, the church. The word church is used here in the first time of Acts, and it can refer to the universal church or individual congregations. And God was at work in this new body or entity, and he set the tone early for the standard that he expected in his church. In North America today, we don't hear much on sermons about God's judgment, God's discipline, or God's wrath. I mean, which of us as parents enjoy having to discipline our children? And which of us as children of God relishes the thought of God having to discipline us? I think it's a subject we would much rather avoid. It's so much easier to talk about God's love. And as any parent knows, sometimes that love for your child involves discipline. Last week, Carrie brought out the various ways that God loves us, his creation. Well, there's another kind of love that God expresses to his children. And for those who have accepted his love with a repentant heart, we are adopted into his family as heirs, and he calls us his children. I don't believe God enjoys having to punish his children. If he did, that would make God sadistic. And there's absolutely no evidence anywhere in the Bible to suggest that. I believe it grieved God to have to administer the punishment that he did to Ananias and Sapphira. Now, it's easy in our society today to say that the punishment didn't fit the crime. It was too harsh. I mean, come on, capital punishment for someone lying about the price of a sale of a piece of property. It's just too harsh. But we don't know the lives that Ananias and Sapphira lived prior to their demise. Was this a habitual sin in their lives? We just don't know. We do know that the standard that God sets for his church is high and the punishment for disobeying him is equally high. And that standard certainly got the attention of the church as all who heard of this event were seized with fear. They weren't just shaken up. They were stopped in their tracks with a fear of the retribution that God had enacted on this couple. That fear can leave a lasting impression. I have an impression that was etched into my memory almost 50 years ago. When I was a young boy in grade six, the classroom that that, uh, that we occupied adjoined onto the principal's office. In fact, there was a door at the back of our classroom going directly into the principal's office. Our principal taught the class for part of the day and another teacher for the rest of it. Well, one day, another classmate, and I remember his name to this, to this day, Dan Nagy, he swore in front of a teacher, and he got sent into the principal's office. And he walked through that door at the back of our classroom into the principal's office, and the door closed. And a short time later, the whole class heard the unmistakable sound of the strap being applied to that boy's hand. And not long after that, the young boy walked back into our classroom, holding his hand and holding back the tears. Now, you can discuss, debate, or argue the use of the strap and whether it's appropriate, whether it's cruel, whether it should be here, or whether it's a good thing that it's gone. But the point I tell in this story, in making this story, is that when the entire class heard that unmistakable sound, the whole class, even the teacher, was dead silent. 
And when our classmate came back into the classroom, we continued to be dead silent. I can't even remember when the teacher began to speak again. It made that kind of an impression on us. In fact, you could say great fear seized the whole classroom that day. It's an unmistakable event that happened in my life. And it stays stays with me. I don't think about it every day. But when I read about this, it came right back to my memory. The interesting thing is that after this incident, I never felt afraid to be in in the presence of Principal Harvey. Whether he was teaching in a classroom, whether we were at an assembly or I just met him somewhere in the school, I was never afraid to be in his presence. But I was certainly afraid of the retribution if I ever swore in front of a teacher. We are God's creation. We have to accept that God will do what is best for his creation. Even though we may not always understand it or agree with it, we have to accept that he is God and we are not. I wonder if Peter had this event in mind when he wrote his letter to address the churches in general. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, it reads, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There's another account similar to that that's found in the book of Acts. And it's found in the Old Testament. It's found in Joshua chapter 7. The circumstances are different, but the resulting judgment by God was equally harsh, if not even harsher. See, Joshua was leading the Israelites into the land that God had promised them through his servant Abraham. The account of the defeat of Jericho, within that account, God had instructed the entire city was to be destroyed, except for gold and silver and other valuables which were to be placed in the treasury of the Lord's house. A man named Achan coveted some of the wealth that he came upon and took some of what was to be dedicated to God and hid it in his tent. Because of the sin of one man, God was not with the Israelites the next time they went into battle, and they lost that battle terribly. When Joshua cried out to God asking why this had happened, God responds in Joshua chapter 7, verses 10 to 13, which reads, The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. Why are you down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them in with their possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go. Consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. That which is devoted is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. Because of one man's sin, all of Israel was held accountable and faced the consequences of that guilt. Through a process determined by God, it was discovered that it was Achan who was the guilty party, and the punishment for his crime was not just the destruction of Achan, but his entire household as well. Here's another example that God takes very seriously the act of lying to him. This type of discipline is not recorded often in the Bible. It wasn't an everyday occurrence that God handed out. But God seems to have made examples examples of people here for the benefit of the larger body. In the case of Israel, it was Achan. In the case of the early church, it was Ananias and Sapphira. 
Why he chose these people in these moments of time is a mystery to me. But it's enough for me to know that God's judgment is righteous and that he sees what I will never have the ability to see or even understand if I could see it. So I have no problem trusting him in this regard. And these examples need to act as a reminder for us today. We are no less his children today than the early Christians were in that first century A.D. Does God discipline extend to his church the same way today? It can. Now, I'm not afraid to be in God's presence today, either in prayer or in the case of the rapture, if that was to happen today, or if I'm called home and I spend the rest of eternity with him in heaven. I'm not afraid to be in God's presence. In fact, I look forward to it. I was once a sinner, guilty and deserving of death. Now I am a sinner saved by God's grace, extended to me by the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, whose resurrection and power over the grave sets the repentant heart free. <clears throat> no, longer, <clears throat> no longer am I a guilty criminal waiting for a just and deserving sentence to be carried out on me. <clears throat> I put my trust and faith in the Son of God, and now my Heavenly Father sees me as righteous before his eyes, and he calls me his child. I have a healthy respect for God's discipline in my life because I know that God disciplines those that he loves for the health of his children. All of God's children will face his discipline because we are all human. We are all prone to falling and to falling into temptation and to needing that discipline. But now I do not have a fear of his wrath. And there's a difference between discipline and wrath. I can fear God's discipline, but I don't fear God's wrath because Satan has no hold on me like he did on Ananias and Sapphira. <clears throat> and it can be the same for you, and you can take that to the bank, and you can earn interest on it. I'm going to close in prayer, and while I'm closing in prayer, I'll ask the, um, the uh, other group to come up, and uh, you have a closing song? Okay. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for this opportunity that we have this morning that we can come before you to open your word, to read it. <clears throat> it's not always easy, Lord. Sometimes what we read cuts to the heart of the matter. It's not whitewashed. It's not filled with fluff. It's not topped with sugar and candy. It's the honest truth to that. And for that, we can be thankful to you. You don't hold back to us. You don't lie to us. You tell us what we need to know so that we can have that holy, healthy relationship with you. And I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for the time that we have that we can spend together in prayer and song and opening your word and in fellowship as well. And I pray for your blessing upon us for the rest of this week and that we would all be a blessing upon you as well as we go about our activities this week. And may we all keep in mind that today could be that day that you return. And I pray for these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.